how does Wild Woman affect women? With her as ally, as leader, model, teacher. We see not through two eyes, but through the eyes of intuition, which is many-eyed. When we assert intuition, we are therefore like the starry night. We gaze at the world through a thousand eyes. The wild nature carries the bundle for healing. She carries everything a woman needs to know and be. She carries the medicine for all things. She carries stories and dreams and words and songs and signs and symbols. She is both vehicle and destination. To adjoin the instinctual nature does not mean to come undone, change everything from left to right, from black to white, to move the east to west, to act crazy or out of control. It does not mean to lose one's primary socializations or to become less human. It means quite the opposite. The wild nature has a vast integrity to it. It means to establish territory, to find one's pack, to be in one's body with certainty and pride, regardless of the body's gifts and limitations, to speak and act in one's behalf, to be aware, alert, to draw on the innate feminine powers of intuition and sensing, to come into one's cycles, to find what one belongs to, to rise with dignity, to retain as much consciousness as possible. And that's Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes in Women Here with the Wolves, page 10. Welcome back to In Her Image, a podcast where we are seeking and celebrating our mother God through scripture, scholarship, the arts, and everyday life. I am your returning co-host, guest host, Kate. At this time, Jess is freshly postpartum, and so I'm honored to be able to jump back in and um, interview someone really special. Um, And from that anchor, um, you guessed that we're finally going to dive into women who run with the wolves. And this is, um, or at least some parts of it, It's it's a big, big book. But uh, this is a book that it took me like a year to read it, um, but it's just full of so much wisdom. And with me to discuss it, I have Amber Richardson. Amber is a facilitator, writer, and performance artist who uses story to design conversations and experiences for women seeking refuge and healing from wounding created inside patriarchal religion. The common thread that runs through her creative work is a desire to expand and voice the feminine spiritual path. So, Amber, welcome. Thank you. Um, So, we would love just like some background into your life and when when did Heavenly Mother kind of first enter your consciousness and and what was that experience? I wanted to serve a Mormon mission. I had a spinal fusion, and I wasn't going to let that hold me back, and I was praying about it, and God told me no, um, and I was devastated, and very stubborn and really feisty, and so I said, fine, then you have to give me a different mission, Um, and a few months later, I had a feminist awakening. I was at BYU at the time. It was my sophomore year. Um, This would have been probably 20... 2012, I think. Yeah. Um, and the some some combination of um, my personality and my um, values and 
my like the makeup of my psyche uh, led to this like feminist awakening being pretty cataclysmic for me. Um, and around that time, I started having a lot of mystical experiences that were kind of pouring through. Um, yeah, I think it may have been brought upon by this the spinal surgery. Actually, I don't know. So I wasn't. I my my feminist awakening was very um, mystical in nature, and I was an artist and a storyteller, and so I started creating pieces and essays and a short film that were driven around um, trying to get my peer group up to speed. <laughs> uh, and I was not extremely successful, but maybe a little bit. So um, when I was in college, I worked at the library on BYU campus, and I would spend my downtime on the second floor in periodicals reading Sunstone Magazine and Dialogue Magazine. Um, so I was very well educated about a lot of um, these topics for a, a really long time. And I was of the opinion back then that, you know, the more people that were educated, the better our chances for healing as a group. And I thought it was possible at that time. Um, so I was just very deep in it. Um, so Heavenly Mother had been on my radar forever, for years, but um, she was just a concept for a long time. And I had this sort of instinct that I needed to wait to dig into that one as deeply as I had with some other things. And then in 2015, um, I started, um, my like mother hunger started cracking open. Um, and I started having experiences, uh, kind of feeling her presence or, um, tasting her signature and, um, I had an experience where the Father God um, told me to pray to her, and I fought with him quite a bit because I had heard the stories that, you know, that's a slippery slope, and once you do that, you know, <laughs> uh, excommunication isn't far off on the horizon, I guess. So I fought with him for a long time, and then finally I succumbed, and uh, in 2016, I only prayed to the mother for an entire year. Um, it was a very interesting year <laughs> for me. And this led to 2017, um, where I performed Carolyn Pearson's uh, play about Heavenly Mother, Mother Woe of the Morning. I did that um, for the summer with some other performers in 2017 in the Provo Canyon, um, which was really, really great. Really great. Um, yeah, so after that, uh, at that performance, there were people who came who um, I was surprised. Uh, because people who came were very invested in what was going on and we would have talkbacks after each performance. Um, I was a theater major. I think I mentioned that. And usually like, it's only like four or five diehards who stay for a talkback. But at these performances about Heavenly Mother, um, like 80, 90% of the audience would stay and they would stay until the sun went down and we would have to cut it off. We'd have to say, you guys have to go home. Um and it would kind of turn into like an impromptu devotional every night. And people wanted to share their feelings and ask questions. And it was really beautiful. So up to that point, most of my work, I felt like I was screaming into a void. Like I, like I just got a lot of patronizing pats on the head. And it was just like nothing was sticking or moving the dial. And then I did this play and started finding that 
oh, actually people are feeling this way. And I, I felt like it was something about the art form that um, kind of created the necessary conditions under which people could allow themselves to feel some of these things. Um, theater has a way of doing that. So anyway, after that point, I thought, okay, um, so the, the hunger is there actually. And what I need to do is create um, the alternative spaces where we can be having these conversations. Um, and so that was when I created her story um, with the help of a friend, Rachel Twelmeyer. She had started it first and then kind of passed it over to me. Um, and yeah, so that was a like a 12 week discussion group where we would use stories of women from the Old Testament and look at them as archetypes for the divine feminine. And I would use the stories and highlight, you know, some of these kind of mother wounds and we would talk about talk about these things in the context of the story rather than in the context of a woman's personal life. Um, yeah, so I've done a number of things since then. Most recently I hosted a series of small retreats in Idaho City that I called Bone Song. And those um, were built on the back of Women Who Rump the Wolves. Um, and at the moment, I'm kind of in a hiatus. I'm writing a book. It's, the writer's block has been really intense. And I just got a job managing a toy shop. And that's been taking a lot of time. So anyway, that's kind of an overview of me and how I got here and um, the work I've done up to this point. Awesome. Thank you. That's, that's really great. Um, I love that. We, we have been able to talk to Carolyn Pearson a couple times on this podcast and that was like such a treat and an honor. So, um, I wish I could have seen that you perform that next up. I just want to kind of talk about, you know, women who run with the wolves. Um, and in this book, um, yeah, I would love for you to give like a little bit of a introduction to this book and what can be found there. Okay. So Women Around the Wolves is a tome. Um, it's really dense. I think the copy that I consult the most is um, 536, 537 pages. So it's big. Um, it took Dr. Estes, it took her 20 years to write it. And she originally wrote it as a work of poetry. Um, but the publisher that she was working with didn't think that that was sufficient. And so she adapted the poetry into prose. Um, Dr. Estes is a senior Jungian analyst. Um, I don't know if you've talked about Carl Jung on this podcast, but he was one of Sigmund Freud's protégés and developed a school of thought around psychology that's, that differs from Freudism um, in a few significant ways. So that's the discipline um, that Dr. Estes trained in. And she's also a folklorist. She's also um, let's see if I can get it. a curandera, which is a traditional um, Mexican healer. Um, really remarkable woman. So what she does in this book is um, she tells uh, folklores, folklore, folk tales, I should say, some of them are stories you heard before, like the ugly duckling, or um, maybe that would be the only one that most people have heard of before. <laughs> uh, anyway, the ugly duckling's in here. <laughs> uh, 
a lot of them are stories you probably haven't heard before, like Bluebeard or Vasilisa. And then there are a few that are actually folktales that she collected herself. Um, one of those would be La Loba. Um, so she'll tell the story first, generally at the start of the chapter, and then the next 10, 15, 20 pages are her explication of the story where she examines it um, as a symbolic uh, transmission, basically. So Jungians really like fairy tales um, and the, the generally accepted idea in that discipline is that a fairy tale is like a wisdom transmission and that all of the characters in a single tale can be read as different facets of the individual psyche. So that's how fairy tales are used in Jungian analysis. Um, yeah. So that's that's how Dr. Estes breaks everything down. But her through line, um, the, the thing that connects each of the chapters and each of the stories is the wild woman archetype. And I'll kind of take a moment here and talk about this a bit. So as far as I understand, um, this book, Women Who Are the Wolves, is an original piece. It's, it's extremely unique. I um, studied theater in college, and my one of my focuses was on oral storytelling. Um, and I've done a lot with folklore. Before reading this book, I had never heard of the Wild on the Archetype. Um, I, I really feel that um, what Dr. Estes has done here is basically resurrected something that got incredibly fragmented, and she's presenting it holistically and from herself. Um, there are a lot of works that derive from Women Who Are of the Wolves, like hundreds, and lots of them that are, that are on Amazon and are probably not like extremely well written. And you'll notice that there's a bit of a like, like uh, the wild woman can be quite trendy. It's very easily fetishized, and usually, like if you're seeing it um, fetishized, what you're going to be seeing are like women posing in skimpy outfits somewhere in Arizona, probably have feathers in their hair, probably holding a drum, you know what I mean? And they're like, yes. wow, I'm so wild. Um, and this is a, a tremendously reduced um, take on what Dr. Estes has put together in this book. Um, as, as, as I understand it, um, the wild woman archetype, uh, as Dr. Estes presents it, is basically the... Um, it's the like the Newman of the soul. It's the it's the home place. Um, and the more that a woman cultivates this wildness or this belonging to the earth, um, and all of that entails, the more um, the more whole she can become. And I'll also say that I would say one of the other. Um, points that Dr. Estes often circles back to is this piece about intuition um, and instinct and sensing. Um, what's really sad for me when I see some of these posts that really fetishize the wild woman is that like <laughs> they've just like uh, separated themselves so far from what's actually being presented um, because it's not about your presentation. It's not about how you look. It's not about like how, how good it feels to, you know, stand topless under the moon. Um, you know, although, yeah, that does feel pretty good. Um, 
it's about like bringing all of your resources to bear. It's about resurrecting all of these parts of you that have been killed off because you were raised in an over-civilizing culture and in a, in a really cruel culture. It's about bringing all of that back to you so that you can live your fullest life. And one of the things that we have to bring back to ourselves is our ability to um, discern and intuit and our ability to know when something is good for us and when something is not good for us. Um, you know, like a wolf in the wild um, might be covered in fur and might enjoy howling at the moon, but she's not doing it because she knows that people are looking at her Instagram account. Like she's not, <laughs> a wolf isn't thinking about um, her own beauty. She just kind of is in her own beauty, you know? So anyway, um, lots of stories in this book, lots of texts, lots of prose. Um I'm glad that you took a year to read it. I think just about every chapter takes a long time to digest and integrate. I've been working with the book, I think, since 2017. Um, I read the Book of Mormon 18 times <laughs> when I was practicing in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I have not read Women Here with the Wolves 18 times, but um, making my way in that direction. <laughs> so. Yeah. I absolutely like have considered it like scripture in, in that same sense of like, you don't just like, sure. There's other books that are three to 500 pages that I could read, you know, rapidly, but it was, it's like this entire story and just like looking inside and seeing like how all of those things are playing out um, in me and in my relationships and, is interesting. It was intuitive in that way too, where like sometimes I would put it down for months mm -hmm. and just like, and then when I would pick it up, the next story that I was reading was like super relevant to what was happening right then in my life. And like, hadn't, you know, if I had read it two months earlier, I wouldn't have like integrated it in the same way. So yeah, anyway, highly recommend <laughs> it's, but yeah, in the same sense of like harvesting deep truths that about yourself that you didn't that that have been hidden from you just like I think many people listening to this podcast probably uh, relate to discovering Heavenly Mother um, or like bringing her alive inside us is like oh she's always been there but someone finally put words to it put art to it so cool and I and I love that you use that quote in the beginning, like to be wild doesn't mean like to be like, oh, I'm covered in fur and, you know, or like I'm out of control. Uh, the wildness is more like, like, like a flower is wild. Like it's, it's true to itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good story. Before I read this book, one of my friends, um, told me this story and, that, and then I like ordered the book. So uh, this is the story of Vasilisa and Baba Yaga. I don't know if that's the full title of it, but um, would you do us the honor of, of sharing that story with us? Yeah, I'd be delighted to tell you the story of Vasilisa. Okay, so this is um, kind of a signature Russian myth. Um, not something that many of us in America encounter. I was very bookish as a child. And so I found this as a storybook when I was a little girl. 
at Halloween time. And I was really scared. <laughs> I was really, really scared of this Baba Yaga lady. And I um, also thought she was very bad. So I only read the story one time. And then I was like, I'm not like, I will go spend time with Greek mythology. Like, I don't, that was too much for me. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So um, a very, very long time ago in old Russia, there was a young mother who lay dying on her deathbed. And it was her dying wish to bequeath her only daughter, a girl named Vasilisa, with um, a parting gift. And so Vasilisa was brought to her bedside and the mother um, reached down underneath the covers and pulled out a small doll that she had crafted in the image of her daughter. It had the same long blonde braids, the same red and black apron, the same um, red shoes. And the mother told her daughter that although she had to leave now, that a part of her would always be in the doll and that if she kept the doll close and fed it, um, that it would direct her and it would tell her the way to go. And so with that, the mother passed. Um, a few months later or a few years later, depending on the telling, um, the father took another wife and this woman had two um, daughters. Sometimes people call Vasilisa the Russian Cinderella um, because of these similar relationship constellations, um, which always makes me laugh. <laughs> there really aren't very many other similarities between um, Vasilisa and Cinderella, at least not on the surface, um, but, but that's one of them. And so um, poor Vasilisa, who was so sweet and so kind, became subjected to the overbearing rule of a wicked stepmother and two wicked stepsisters. Um, and as her father was often gone on business, um, this relationship through time became more and more demeaning and more and more oppressive. One wintry afternoon, the stepmother and stepsisters um, colluded together. They were tired of Vasilisa's kindness. They were tired of her purity. They were tired of having her in their space, constantly reminding them just by being herself of what terrible, dreadful people they were. And so they conspired together to douse the hearth flame. Um, and then they would send Vasilisa out into the forest to get an ember. And the only person who lived out there, everybody knew, was the fearsome, the dreaded Baba Yaga. Um, and they did not think Vasilisa was going to survive an encounter with Baba Yaga. So they did it. They did the deed. They doused the hearth flame. And the stepmother explained that she was too old to go into the forest and her daughters were too scared. So the only one who could do it would be Vasilisa. And Vasilisa still being so naive and so good hearted and, you know, so pure of intention, took up the mantle and agreed to go out into the forest to find Baba Yaga. But she packed her doll, the doll that her mother had given her, and she packed it in her apron. And as they were walking through the forest, she would feed her doll little breadcrumbs and she would listen very closely for that soft voice. And her doll would say, go left or go right or wait, stop. Um, and through the passage of the night, the doll led Vasilisa right to the front door of Baba Yaga's house. Baba Yaga's house uh, was sort of um, a hut and it was built on two big bright yellow scaly chicken legs so when it had a mind to it would just get up and dance and kick around um the house is it was fenced in um by a fence made of um 
human skulls sitting on spikes. Uh, legendarily, these are all the souls that Baba Yaga had eaten. Um, and as Vasilisa arrived and set foot in the yard, Baba Yaga descended from um, the clouds. She had a big cauldron, like a big mortar and pestle that she would ride around in. And her hair was really greasy, her face covered in warts, her chin very hairy. And her chin kind of like curves up to, towards her nose. Um, a, a very formidable individual. So as Vasilisa is standing there watching Baba Yaga descend out of the clouds and she's looking at this house dancing on chicken legs and taking in, you know, fence line of human skulls, she feels a moment of trepidation and she asks her doll, is this the right place? <laughs> this is where you wanted me to go. And the doll says, yes, yes, child. So Vasilisa takes in a deep breath and um, approaches Baba Yaga and Baba Yaga says, what do you want? What are you doing here? And Vasilisa says, I'm here seeking an ember for my hearth. Our fire went out. And Baba Yaga says, and what makes you think that I would give you an ember? And Vasilisa pauses and does not slouch and does not tremble and does not lash out and simply says, because I ask. And Baba Yaga smiles a little bit, but tries to conceal her, you know, um, her pleasure. And she says, well, you're lucky because that's the right answer. She goes on and says, but I can't possibly give you the ember until you've done some work for me. I need a lot of help around this place. So you're going to do the cooking, the sweeping, my laundry um, every day until I think um, your work is sufficient for an ember. And I'll have other tasks for you to do as well. And Vasilisa, who has the wisdom to defer to great power when it's in the room and to treat it respectfully, uh, simply nods her head and says, yes, grandmother, I'll do whatever you ask. And so an unlikely apprenticeship begins and Vasilisa sweeps the house and sweeps the yard and she takes Babiaga's clothes down to the river and washes them and she prepares large amounts of food for Babiaga every night um, Baba Yaga is a hungry, hungry witch, and she eats enough for 10 people every night. And she loves nothing more than um, smearing her fingers at the bottom of the stew pot and then smearing the grease across the blood. Chapstick. Uh, and occasionally, Baba Yaga will approach Vasilisa uh, with other tasks, tasks that are a little bit more difficult. Um, one evening, she asks Vasilisa to separate the mildewed corn from the good corn. And these are individual corn kernels, and Vasilisa begins to feel a sense of panic. Like, I have to, I have to separate all of these pieces of corn by the morning. Like, it can't be done. And her little doll says, "Don't worry, I'll do it. You just go to sleep, and I'll take care of this project." And so, although Vasilisa stresses a bit and she tries to do it herself, eventually she succumbs. Um, and allows the doll to sort the corn. The next morning when she wakes up, Vasilisa is again um, shocked and visibly put out, but concealing a little bit of pleasure. And she says, my goodness, girl, like, I didn't know you had it in you. And um, she passes the corn off to a pair of hands that appear in the room. Um, they're detached from any arms or from any visible bodies, and the hands do the rest of the work um, cleaning the corn kernels. And Vasilisa just observes all of this, but doesn't ask any questions. 
Um, the same thing happens the next night. Uh, Baba Yaga says, this time I'd like you to do something even harder. I'd like you to separate these poppy seeds from these pieces of dirt. There are huge mounds of it in the kitchen. And again, Vasilisa panics. Like, the, I, I can't possibly. Like, how could I? But internally, right? Because this isn't something she shows to Bob next. She's panicking. To me. How could I possibly uh, accomplish this? And the little doll in her pocket says, just go to sleep and I'll take care of it. And so uh, the next morning, Vasilisa wakes to see that the poppy seeds and the dirt are separated. And um, Baba Yaga is again pleased but disgruntled. And the hands appear midair um, to package up the poppy seeds and, and rid the house of the dirt. And Baba Yaga kind of... Uh, goads uh, Vasilis a little bit. She says, aren't you curious about those hands that keep appearing? <laughs> like, don't you have any questions for me, child? And uh, Vasilisa, you know, thinks about it. And the truth is she does. She's been suppressing a lot of questions. And so she says, yes, actually. Um, who is that man who rides by on his white horse, the white man on the white horse every morning? And um, Bobby Yaga says, oh, that is my dawn. And Vasilisa says, and what about the, the red man on the red horse? And uh, Bobby Yaga says, oh, that's my rising sun. And Vasilisa says, and the black man on the black horse. And Bobby Yaga says, oh, that one's my knight. And then Vasilisa is getting a lot of information. And so she does start leaning towards asking a question about these hands that float in midair. Um, and Bobby Yaga kind of intuits it and, and uh, eggs her on and says, and now, child, aren't you going to ask about the hands that appear in And just as Vasilisa is about to say something, the little doll in her pocket starts jumping up and down, telling her, don't do it, don't do it. And so Vasilisa kind of uh, bites back the question and she says instead, well, grandmother, as you yourself say, to know too much too soon uh, makes one old before their time. And Baliaga's eyes twinkle a little bit, and um, she says, "You're right. I do say that." Um, and then she says, "How did how how did it happen that you became so intuitive, child?" And Vasilisa says, "Oh, I think that was because of the blessing of my mother." And uh, this word does not sit well with Baliaga, and so she screeches, "Blessing! Oh, we have no need of blessings in this house. It's time for you to go." So she begins, uh, you know, shovel, uh, what would you say, like, um, shuffling, shooing out of the home, shooing her out of the home. Thank you. And uh, as they're leaving the yard, she grabs one of the spikes out of the ground, the spikes that have the human skulls on top, and she passes it over to Vasilisa. And she says, here's your fire, girl. I hope I never see you again. And so Vasilisa, after this apprenticeship with Babiaga, begins to set foot on the path. And, and this time she has uh, two oracles. She has the doll in her pocket from her mother and the skull on the stick from Babiaga. And both of them kind of lead the way. At one point, as she's closing in on home, uh, she second guesses herself and she thinks, I don't know about this. Like, this is pretty... <laughs> This is pretty imposing. I don't know if I, I should be carrying this human skull on this stick. Did I mention it? Um, it has fire in its eyes. Fire. This is what's lighting her path through the dark beams of fire that come out of the skull's eyes. So she, for a moment, she second guesses herself and says, I don't know if, if this is for me. I don't know if, if I should be holding this or wielding this. And the little doll in her pocket says, no, no, no. Keep it. 
hold on, you'll see, this is yours. And so she does arrive home and she's a changed woman. And, and that's the thing. She's a woman now. She was a girl before. She's learned what she needed to learn in her time with Baba Yoda. So she comes into the house and her stepmother and stepsisters are astounded and surprised. And I've also been living in the cold. Um, they weren't able to find a member themselves. And so uh, they ask Vasilisa where she's been, why it took so long. Um, and Vasilisa you know, has nothing to say to them. So she leans the scroll on the stick up against the wall and goes to sleep. And the next morning wakes to find out that through the course of the night, the skull had swiveled and found the wicked stepmother and the wicked stepsisters and had uh, burnt them to a crisp with the fire that came out of its little skull sockets. Um, so that's, that is where the story ends in uh, Women from the Wolves. But in many versions, uh, Vasilisa gets her happily ever after after that and ends up marrying the local prince and becoming queen. Yeah, so that's the story of Vasilisa. I very much enjoyed listening to that story and forgot I was recording a podcast too. I was just like, this is awesome. Beautiful. Um, yeah, like like you said in the book, you know, then the next several pages, like, is Dr. Estes, like, diving into it. Like, how, obviously, it's impossible for us to go into the depth that she does, but what can we learn from this tale? And what do the stepsisters and stepmother represent? What is Baba Yaga? And, you know, what are, if if we're assuming that she is an archetype of the great mother, then like, this is a new, this is new to many of us. We usually picture her as the sweet, uh, loving, open-armed, you know, woman, right? But she's this haggard old witch that's kind of nasty. <laughs> so can you help us? Yeah. So I'll start answering your question by kind of throwing it back to what I was mentioning about the Russian Cinderella. Um, so most of us, um, just kind of like lay people who don't get deep into the European folklore traditions, our primary exposure to fairy tales is through the Disney adaptations, which have been um, hugely sanitized and had a lot of glitter dumped on them. And I, I say this as someone who adores the, those stories and films. Right. Um, but, you know, like there's a version of the Cinderella story where it's her wedding day and her stepmother and stepsisters are in the sacristy of the chapel attending the ceremony and a flock of doves, which are, you know, an old European symbol for angels, fly in through the windows and they peck out the stepmother's eyes and the stepsister's eyes. Um, in the story of Snow White, at Snow White's wedding, the Wicked Queen is in attendance and the dwarves fashion her. Um, iron shoes that they sit in the coals and they force her to put her feet in them when they're hot so she dances herself to death um yeah uh i could go on <laughs> but um you know in the world of vasilisa um where there never has been a disney adaptation of this story um some of the kind of like the horror and the more violent aspects of the story are just immediately in your face and um, can be kind of uh, off-putting. Like I said, as a child, I was like, I'm not reading that story again. Um, yeah, but I think 
I mean, what's interesting is that if we look at these examples of like Snow White and Cinderella, um, these pieces of the story where um, justice like plays out, um, they actually finish out the arc. And you can see that, you know, Snow White and Cinderella and Vasilisa go through a complete maturation process. And at the end, they're women who have not only received the crown of like whichever kingdom they've married into, but they've received the power that comes along with that. They're women who understand that um, they're creatures of consequence. And on some level, they're also women who have made peace with the um, nature of life, which is something that includes death. Um, so I think that's probably the best place to begin with Babi Yaga. Um, In Dr. Estes's explication of the story, she compares Vasilisa's birth mother against Babiaga, and she calls the birth mother the too good mother, um, which in her use of the English language means um, that she's good for a while. Um, and But there comes a time when the child has to leave the nest. And if the child is going to grow and mature, she needs um, she needs to come up against something. Like this is true if you're trying to build muscle, you have to you have to press some weight, right? Um, if you're going to mature, um, you can't just be suckling on the breast of the divine mother. You need some instruction. You need someone who can show you your weak spots, your vulnerabilities. I was just flipping through my book as we were talking. And I think like kind of an easy and succinct way to digest the story a little bit. So you were talking about the, the too good mother, meaning like a mother that's useful in its time, a mother that's a mother to an infant or a child, you know, who shelters and protects and provides everything. And um, so the first task that Dr. Estes outlines in this as Vasilisa matures from a girl to a woman uh, with her own uh, discernment and power is letting the two good mother die. So the, the sweet mother dies. We see this as a tragedy, but in reality, this is part of um, not that everyone's mother has to die, but it is part of her growth in that not only does the mother die, but she gives her this gift that of the doll that will guide her through her life as she feeds it. So as she's, um, as she feeds it breadcrumbs, you know, feeding our intuition by listening to ourselves, uh, the direction becomes stronger. So that's kind of the first task is letting that part die. The second is, uh, it says, unveiling exposing the crude shadow so the stepmother and stepsisters enter and they're um they treat her poorly and we can see this as exterior but like like you said these are all interior what are the voices inside of us that are, that treat us poorly and that see, uh, so self-doubt and make us work um you know labor for they're, you know, to try to prove ourselves or I don't know. I think that makes sense. We all have, we all have shadow 
in us. And then the third task is navigating in the dark. So as I said with the doll, that we're stepping out into the dark, we're Eve leaving the garden, you know, we're starting, she's starting to listen to this little inner compass that her mother gave her and learning to trust it. And even when it leads her to the door of Baba Yaga, that is like so frightful, (laughs) she still decides to trust it, even though everything would say otherwise, that this is certainly, you know, her death. Um, and the fourth task facing the wild hag. So that's, that's, uh, Baba Yaga is the wild hag. So why do you think that, yeah, what, what does the wild hag represent? Well, something that you've said a couple times between the text messages that you sent me prior to this recording and also, um, while we've been recording is you've kind of characterized Baba Yaga as like nasty or demanding or ugly. Um, and I think that's really interesting um, because she kind of tends to, she kind of just tends to look the way that you see her, you know, um, like as a little girl, um, terrifying because I need it. I need my two good mother. <laughs> like this is no, thank you. This is not going to help me developmentally at all. Um, but you know, Baba Yaga is like the accumulation of everything that patriarchal culture has rejected in women. So she's powerful. She doesn't take, shit. she doesn't give, um, she eats as much as she wants. So she's very fat. Um, she's beautifully fat. Um, she's hairy. You know, like she, she just does exactly what she wants when she wants to do it, because that's what she wants to do. Um, and this, these are not qualities that patriarchy has valued or cultivated in women. Also, she's old. We don't really like our old ones much, do we? Um, you know, but, but the truth of the matter is like, she's kind of, she's playful and she's feisty and she also like, I think she does like test Vasilisa at various points because, you know, if, if Vasilisa is a bad apple, then she doesn't want her in her home. You know, she's like, I don't have time for you. This is not what I'm here for. Um, but there's also something in her that's sort of mercurial and, and also very loving, you know, it's like, she understands what her role is in the story. She's here to initiate Vasilisa. And that's not something that happens in a nurturing way. Um, like we talked about before to be initiated means that you have to come up against opposition of some kind. You have to actually push yourself and stretch yourself. There has to be some toil involved. Um, you know, and so Vasilisa is just, um, although she could, she could have Vasilisa for a snack. She's not going to do that. Um, so long as Vasilisa acknowledges the power that she stands before and respects the power that she stands before which Vasilisa does um so yeah the, the wild hag I mean Dr. Estes who has studied um this branch of folklore in depth and actually was adopted by a Hungarian family so um this branch of folklore like kind of made up some of the culture of her upbringing um she talks about how Baba Yaga is a derivative uh excuse me a derivative of a like I think she says a Minoan horse cult which is something I haven't studied at any 
level at all. Um, but I can follow what she's saying when she talks about how archetypally Baba Yaga appears in the story as an emanation of the Great Mother. You know, she says, this is my day, this is my rising sun, this is my night. Um, and this is a this is a kind of mother that, you know, your audience um, might be trepidatious about. Um, like you said, I, I mean, here's what's really crazy about Mormonism. Um, we can't even as a collective acknowledge the heavenly mother. Like that is so taboo. And I know that like for you personally to get to this point has involved so much like uh, breaking of ground, uncomfortable conversations, honesty with yourself, and a certain level of like uh, the shifting of your probably social network. Like there are a lot of people that you don't relate to in the same way that you did before because you've chosen to kind of listen to this hunger that you feel inside, right? And all of that, for the most part, um, was around this too good mother, the heavenly mother, right? Um, and I don't mean to diminish that at all. Um, right. But yeah, like this is this is what you've had to do to access the mother who's going to affirm you in your feelings. Like, yes, you are a girl. Um, I love that you're a girl. But yes, it's also true that you being a girl in this time and place is costly, that it's hurt you. And it's okay for you to feel sad about that. It's okay for you to feel angry about that. You are divine. You are equal to your brothers. Yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> right? Right. Um, Bobby in a different camp entirely. Like, she's not going to coddle you. If you show up at her hut and you're like, what? I did. You know, she'd be like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you bringing this to me? Like, you don't know the answer to that question? Go get the answer to that and then come back. Like, stop. Like, you're wasting my time. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, um, yeah, she's like repulsed by the the word blessing. Like my mother gave me this blessing and she's repulsed by it. Right. Right. For whatever reason, you know, she's like, "No, no, no. You learn. You, you know, I love how when you told the story, you said this unlikely apprenticeship and it's like Vasilisa didn't probably see it that way. She's just like, "I got to do what I got to do to get this task, but Baba Yaga is teaching her." Yeah. Her ways. Yeah. And so I guess the other, like, um, I don't know, potato that I'll throw into the stew is in a, in a lot of cultures, um, like pre-industrial cultures, um, you know, the way that they conceptualize the divine is very different. Um, and death oftentimes has as much a seat at the table as life, um, as life does, you know, and so women are, um we're receptacles of life and death you know the two really can't be separated we our culture sure has tried and is still trying um but yeah there's a there's a sort of like a cruelty i guess um a, a chaoticness almost to this aspect of life here you know like um we have prophecies or revelations about this like coming future this zion world in which the lamb and the lion are going to lay down together um i don't know if that's true or not i don't know but what i do know is that right now you put a lamb and a lion in the same space and that lamb um will get shredded by teeth and there will be blood and muscle and sinew and there will be death and it will be vicious 
Um, you know, so in the past, uh, human beings incorporated that whole energy into their picture of the divine. That was part of what God was, you know. And at this stage in time in human evolution, we've actually excised that. That's not a part of what the divine is. And in fact, what the divine is, is something that's actually going to make that all right. And all of our predators are going to be vegetarians in the future. Again, is that true? I don't know. But I'm just kind of laying it out for you. So Baba Yaga comes from this tradition in which, as I'm saying, the sort of like viciousness of the life cycle is accounted for and included in, um, you know, someone's vision of the divine. Um, and in terms of human maturation, you know, there's a reason that we sanitize our stories. Little kids um, are very vulnerable. So we protect them and we shelter them from things because their little psyches really can't handle a full exposure to what life is. Um, and it takes time and it takes guidance and it takes the feeling of a lot of feelings and the relinquishing of a lot of fantasies in order to become an adult who can, you know, kind of live awake and live, um, live with, uh, live a life that's in full view of the, the sometimes like violent nature of life. I mean, if not like lions and lambs, then tsunamis and volcanoes and earthquakes. Do you know what I mean? It's a crazy place. Um, so, you know, it's good. It's good, I think, that we protect children from that. And it's good that we sanitize our fairy tales for them. But what's what's happened in our culture is that the bridge that people should be crossing into maturation and adulthood is completely deteriorated. And this story rebuilds it for us and it presents that bridge in the guise of an old Russian witch named Baba Yaga. Yeah, I would say like I've heard talks that are like just glorify the light all the time and say like if anything is dark in any way, you know, run from it. And and I think that's kind of what you're saying is like darkness and light are all part of wholeness. Um there's like a song that's that by only choosing the light and banishing the dark, we're walking around cut in half. And so, yeah, I, I do agree that, like, at least in my journey, like you said, has been, like, and doing this podcast and everything, a couple of years of, like, just seeking this, like, this light mother. Um, and that's been good, and that's been part of my process. But then another part of that is, like, seeing the life death life cycle entirely and seeing um seeing the bigger picture and seeing the things that we can learn from her and and ultimately what she does she doesn't just give her the ember that she asked for little does she know that that ember comes back and destroys her shadows being the stepsisters and stepmother yeah what else should we talk about is there anything else in that story that you want to highlight or? Yeah. The only other, the other thing that's coming up is um, the word should. Um, I think that the word should has its uses and that there are times and places where it's um, necessary and helpful. But I know in working with this audience for so long um, that there are a lot of women in Mormonism who 
have very um, shattered um, images of themselves. Their self-identity isn't strong or resilient. Um, and they're kind of operating in the world as a neglected child who is looking for love and validation. And so they might hear something like this and be like, Oh my gosh, like I'm so stupid. Like I feel so, I feel like so, what would be the right word? Um, like I feel so like naive or like underdeveloped. Behind. Behind. Thank you. Like, I can't believe I like, what am I thinking? Like having a relationship with heavenly mother. Um, So if what I'm saying is resonating for anyone listening, I just like to say, stop doing what you're doing. Like, stop, stop it, (laughs) please. Um, This is one of those places where that word should doesn't have any application. Like if you are in a place in your path and in your growth where you need to be spending time with the divine mother of nurturance and love, and you need that affirmation, um, you know, like if you are in a, a tentative place where you're just starting to kind of wake up to your wounds and you grew up in a system and a culture that routinely and systematically squashed those instincts, um, please keep doing what you're doing. If you're listening to this and it's not resonating and you're like, nope, this isn't for me right now, or it's just not for me, then listen to yourself, please. Like, um, there's no reason to make any value judgments about where you are based on what you're hearing. There's no reason to criticize yourself or punish yourself or um, hurt yourself in any way. And I just don't want you to do it. And I really am not going to tolerate that um, being projected at me. Definitely. So don't come find me with those feelings. Um, deal with them yourself <laughs> and like know that um, you're loved and that your little doll will tell you where you need to go, when you need to go there, and how long you need to stay. Um, and that's really, I think, what's at the heart of the story and what's most important. So um, maybe just like bear that in mind. Thank you for that. Um, it's, I think that's been a challenge for me in terms of just doing this podcast is listening to where my little doll tells me to go and, you know, and trusting that that's my path and not everyone else's, you know. All right. Well, I have really loved this story and this discussion and your perspectives and admonitions and, you know, especially just to, to listen to ourselves and to, um, continue in the way that we've been going and, and trusting ourselves. And so I just want to ask you, as we ask all of our guests, how has mother God changed you? Uh, it's been uh, pretty radical, honestly. I guess it's 2023 now, right? So this all kind of started for me in 2015. It's eight years. Um, yeah, I, I don't feel like uh, that process is completed yet for me. Um but I, I just feel like I'm closing in on some kind of resolution now. Um, like I can sort of see the horizon line in the distance. I'm like, okay, that's where I'm going. I mean, I was a, I was a radically different version of myself when this began. 
Um, I really like the person that I'm becoming and there's still remnants of like, like lots of remnants of my wounds that are floating around in my system and I meet them frequently. Um, but overall, I, I guess that's what I would say. I feel like the mother God has been a force of healing and transformation for me um, and consciousness. She has really invited me to be much more seeing and much more honest about um, what, what's been, what really goes on inside, um, what my feelings really are about things and what my perceptions are and what my questions are and my, my troubles. And um, that was where things started. There's a lot of sort of invitation and support for me to be more aware of myself and to be more honest with myself. And as time has gone on, um, I've also been given the opportunity to acknowledge other things inside, not just grief and um, sadness and betrayal, but also I've been given opportunities to meet my own power and to reclaim that the same way I've reclaimed some of my awarenesses about, you know, things that happened in my childhood that were not of the highest good, I guess you could say. So um, overall, like uh, my experience with the mother God has been incredibly life-changing and transformative. And I think I still have a ways to go. Thank you for sharing this story with us. And uh, if our listeners are interested in learning more from you, is there any where they can follow you or any way that you're available out there? I'm pretty um, boundaried at this time, actually. Yeah, I had these retreats I was doing, but those are over now. So... Um, I am interested in maybe picking up a little bit of one-on-one work. It would have to be on the weekends because I work full-time during the week. Um, But if any of your listeners are interested in that, they can send me an email. My email address is richardson, that's R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S-O-N, dot A-N-B, the first three letters of my first name, Amber, at gmail.com. So that's richardson.amb at gmail.com. kinds of things I can do. Um, I've been facilitating uh, guided imagery for gosh, um, a little over 10 years now. Um, I have quite a bit of experience in the world of somatic healing. I also um, actually this summer was lucky enough to attend a training with Dr. Estes. Um, so I have that under my belt as well. Um, at these retreats that I've been doing for the last few years, we focus on intergenerational Mormon trauma, ancestral work, um, specifically with Mormon pioneers and, um, kind of bringing the, um, energy or essence of the divine feminine into that, um, lineage. So if any of that sparks anything, um, you can email me and we can talk about the kinds of sessions that we could potentially set up. Um, But I think that's about it. All right, Amber, thank you so much. And 
I don't remember how I used to end these, but <laughs> I really appreciate your time. That's all I've got to say. <laughs> awesome. Sounds like a, a great ending. Cut. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we hope you'll share it. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a monthly donation at anchor.fm slash inherimage. We hope you'll tune in next Sunday for another inspiring episode.